This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hello, I'm Lale Arakoglu with another episode of Women Who Travel. Who doesn't look forward to summer swimming? At the beach, in lakes, and outdoor swimming pools. But our guests today are more intrepid and plunge into frigid temperatures for all manner of reasons. Later, we'll hear from author Dorth Nors, who lives on a remote part of Denmark's west coast, about her relationship to the water. But first, an author and podcaster who made it her mission to swim in every tidal pool in Britain over the course of a year. Cold water swimming gives you an amazing mental clarity that I had not been able to get through running, mindfulness, meditation, yoga. And suddenly I found this thing that was able to deliver me a little bit of peace and quiet from my grief. When you get in a pool, whether that's the sea, a tidal pool, a swimming pool, you can have a splash around and be a child. And that's amazing. And that's beautiful. And all of us need to do that more. Maybe the other thing all of us need to do more put our heads under water and scream a little bit as well. Freya Bromley's The Tidal Year, a memoir of grief, swimming and sisterhood, came out in May. Grief was something I needed to experience, but in a safe place. And then suddenly I found tidal pools and became a bit bit obsessed with them. Freya's memoir is about sharing her swimming adventures with her friend Miri. And she examines how their friendship deepens because of it. When I first met Miri, we met on a swimming holiday, actually. It was a group of 10 complete strangers and it was honestly love at first sight. And we just became completely obsessed with each other and the closest of friends. Miri has lost her sister. Freya's brother, Tom, died of cancer in 2016 when he was 19. I guess when I'm swimming, I'm a version of myself that knew my brother, Tom, who is playful and quite loud, quite wild, quite silly. I don't get to be that person that knew Tom very much. You know, since he died, I've got a lot older. He hasn't. I'm quite far from him. And something about swimming, I don't know if it's because I'm in nature or because I'm held or because I can splash around. That gap, that is just gone somehow. It felt like my friend Miri was able to love me at a time that I wasn't able to love myself. And our time together on that journey really transformed my life through all the cut knees and hypothermia and cancel trains. Did you really go into it thinking you're going to spend a whole year or was it a sort of 
accumulative journey that you just kept going because you couldn't stop? I think we became a little bit hooked on the idea that it was keeping us going. So when we found this beautiful tidal pool in Margate, we were like, what is this? Why is this here? Where are there more? Why do they exist? And how long have they been here? Tide pools are filled with seawater that gets trapped as the tide recedes. There's a huge range of them in the UK, from those built for Victorian bathers to natural swimming holes encircled by rocks. So a tidal pool is this perfect harnessing of nature. This architectural forms are being used to swim in something that still feels incredibly beautiful and natural. And also because they're protected, it means that you can swim in the sea safe from riptides or currents. Tell me about the wildflowers and the sea life and the birds and, and kind of what, what are you seeing as you're swimming when your head goes up above the surface? Swimming throughout a year was amazing because it gave me a total new appreciation for the British coastlines in all weather. There was one tidal pool in Cornwall called uh, Travone Bay or Rocky Beach and this, the stones are these large grey slabs that kind of slope into the cliffs and beyond the sea was very stormy, there were waves crashing into the cliffside but we were in this completely still pool. It was so still it was almost like a saucer of milk and to be able to feel the intensity of the sea but to be totally safe was just amazing you know having all this salt water raining down on us it was just fantastic and to also be able to immerse ourselves in nature when it was cold and the cliffs were full of amazing golden auburn colors in autumn or in spring where there was this great fuzz of pink sea thrift and the core of seagulls was just amazing I think writing the book really helped connect me to nature because I became a very good noticer of things. And I'm always suggesting people to start diaries. And often people say, oh, I'm not very creative. Writing isn't for me. But as soon as you keep a journal, you begin to notice the things around you a lot more. And it really connects you with the seasons. And that was a real gift I got from this adventure. Initially, I felt incredibly insecure about the fact that I didn't know the Latin names of plants or of the birds when they were flying past. But I tried to let go of that and embrace what I could see, which was colour, texture, where I noticed things. And I think all of the wildlife around our coasts, it's really important that we notice it and that we care for it because the more we care for it, the more we can really look after it. And so having that engagement is so important. How do you go about bracing yourself for that first plunge in the cold water? I mean, it must take a bit of like mental strength. Yeah, absolute bravery and courage, which I think are absolute necessities when going for your first wild swim. Someone said to me, and I think this is great advice, breathe out as soon as you get in, because if you inhale too much, it can kind of cause you to feel like you're having a little bit of a panic. The other thing that I think is very helpful is as a kind of general guide, you might want to swim a minute per degree. So if it's five degrees, you probably want to do about five or six minutes and some people like to wear these amazing little socks made of kind of a wetsuit neoprene material to keep your toes warm because that's the first part of my body that gets cold. And sometimes people also wear gloves, but I personally don't like to wear the gloves because if I can touch my forefinger and my thumb together, it means I'm okay. If my hands begin to seize up, it's definitely time to get out. So that's a good top tip. Okay. I was, for a minute, I was like, why? And then I was like, oh, because... <laughs> 
it's to see if they've gone numb. <laughs> yeah. As simple as that. Your fingers are too cold, it's time to get out. Coming up, Freya visits places with fascinating backstories and shares more about her friendship with Miri. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You return to Wales and your parents' current house is in Brecon. And I had to look up exactly where it was because my mum's from Brecon and my grandparents were in Wales when I was growing up. So I'm like very fond of that part of the world. And it is so beautiful and wild looking. It is so wild and they do such a good job of keeping it that way. People really take care of the nature there and are really involved and invested in it. You know, you walk along the river and there are signs telling you what kind of flowers you might be seeing or saying, you know, don't shake this one because actually it's going to spread all of its seeds everywhere. And I love that as soon as it gets as hot as it is now, I know that back home, everyone will be in the tarns, in the top of the mountain. I don't know if you've ever been swimming at Keeper's Pond, but people have a really beautiful relationship with nature there. So I'm pleased to hear that you like it too. And I mean, it's the best place for hiking because Sugarloaf, the car park's kind of halfway up the mountain. So you're 40 minutes to the summit. It's a good cheat walk. I have gone on family walks on the Sugarloaf before and 
for listeners who aren't familiar with Brecon and Wales, the sugarloaf is named so because it is this very strange shape. How would you describe it? Like a little bun on top of the horizon and it just looks sweet and delicious and perfectly formed at the top like a lovely little sugarloaf, I guess. Swimming in the bend of a river or taking a hike to a lake that only locals know about isn't anything new. But wild swimming has become a bit of a buzzword in the UK, especially in the last few years. Finding a lock, a stretch of open sea or a tidal pool like Freya prefers is usually guaranteed to take you off the beaten path and allow you to discover someplace new. It also has the benefit of being free, and during the pandemic, it was a means of spending much-needed time outdoors. It's no wonder, then, that all sorts of online communities have cropped up, swapping tips on how to find the best places for a dip and where to find similarly adventurous swimmers. There was very little that I could find in books or libraries. It was a lot of -of word-of-mouth stories from intergenerational stories of how people have connected with the landscape around them as they grow up. And that's really beautiful and why these places are really so important to coastal communities. I spent a lot of time researching this trip on Facebook groups and on a website called the Outdoor Swimming Society or Mental Health Swims. And they're fantastic for being able to go with a group of people so that you have people that can look out for you. I think often when I'm online, especially if I'm on Twitter, I feel like there's a lot of disagreement or there's a lot of hate in the country at the moment. And going to these places, realize that we do want the same things. We want to be connected to the land in which we grew up. We want to have safety for our children. We want to be happy. We want to have shared community. And the world that I think lots of us talk about wanting really exists in these coastal communities. And that was true in Devon, in Wales, in Scotland. And everybody made me feel at home at every single journey someone had a flask of coffee or some cake. It doesn't matter if they're a stranger, they'll share it with you after a swim. And I think it can be really hard to get that kind of community. And I think that's why so many people love swimming is because people are willing to pass you their towel. They're willing to look out for you if you look a bit cold. And I suppose really that's what's kept me returning to it. The flask made me think there's nothing more satisfying than having a hot drink or a snack after you've done some sort of physical activity or just gotten really, really cold. What were your sort of go-tos? Was there anything that you found that people were always turning to at these tidal pools to snack on? Was it a specific fizzy drink or or a specific cake? Well, Tunnock's tea cakes, of course. Also, yeah, Caramax bars, uh, flasks full of tea. And people often bring like a Tupperware full of homemade banana breads. When we were in Scotland, we had amazing fish stews from a van that was just around the corner. And it's lovely to be warm and cozy and share these treats. But my top tip is that I have a very small miniature hot water bottle that on a very cold day manages to somehow stay warm. And it's lovely to be able to have that after a swim, but also press it against the stomach of a stranger and offer your hot water bottle for a moment for a little bit of recharging. Oh, I love that. You're making it sound so wonderful and cozy. You mentioned that um, there's a lot of local history wrapped up in them, and some of them have really fascinating stories. Tell me about Witch Lake in Scotland, because that's that one really captured my imagination. Yeah, it, it so did for me as well, because I think on this journey, we often meet a lot more women than we do men. But I, I'm not sure why, but I think wild swimming really seems to 
capture the imagination of lots of groups of women. We were in Scotland and we were traveling around looking for a little cluster of tidal pools. There was somewhere called Step Rock. And also there was somewhere called Witch Lake where witches used to be tried. And they would throw women who were accused of being witches into the water with their right thumb tied to their left toe. And of course, if they sank, then they weren't charged. They were free, but obviously they perished. But if they floated, then they were a witch and they'd be burned at the stakes. So this environment where the water was used to try women is now where people were swimming in the coast and using it as a way to free themselves or be connected to their own bodies. And the kind of dark symmetry in that I found really interesting because that history is not so far away. Uh, And the connection to the landscape there, they've got these amazing long black jagged rocks that almost look like witches' fingers. There's something quite spooky about it that I was very moved when we visited. And that was all local stories that people had told me about this amazing place. You've talked so much about how these pools and, and the water and the act of swimming has felt almost like a way of protecting you and sort of creating a space where you feel safe, especially in these communal spaces, which often have a lot of women. How did it feel to be swimming in water that had been used to harm women? Was that, you know, you talked about that dark symmetry, but that must have been quite overwhelming. Yeah, I suppose it was. It's amazing that water in different places often feels very different. Sometimes water can feel very sticky or balmy or salty. Sometimes it feels very cool and crisp. And the water that day when we were in Scotland, on the surface, the sun was up so high that the water appeared almost black, like a very dark well. But then when you were in it, it was completely clear. You could see my arms, my hands, a very little color difference. And so I guess there was a sense of things being slightly different on the surface than they are. And I like that about water, that the expectations when you get in are always very different. Every swim's kind of different. And often I never really regret one. As you became better at noticing things and seeing things, and as you wrote wrote this book, do you feel like at the end of this journey and at the end of writing the book, do you think you discovered what you were searching for? Or do you think it just opened up more possibilities? opened up more possibilities for sure. I, I thought that I would do grief so well by doing all of this cold water swimming that I would be fixed by the end of this adventure. And I haven't got to that feeling. I feel better. I have a lot more compassion for myself. I feel like I really appreciate what a brave person I am. And I'm glad that I don't feel fixed because that would be feeling quite far away from Tom. So I'm okay to be here, but what I set out to do and the feeling that I have with me now, and maybe quite different. But I think what I've also come to appreciate is how wonderful it is that when you go for a swim, there are lots of other people that have their own stories that are also trying to be really well. And they're outside, whatever time of year, whatever the weather, making that commitment. And that's really nice and something that I need to remind myself to do a lot more. When we arrived at the coast, the sea was laid out before us. I stepped forward to peer over the ledge, and there was the pool, 
a speck among the limestone. From this height, I had a chance to assess the tidal pool's size. It's small and mimics the shape of a natural rock pool. There are two stories for how Dancing Ledge might have got its name. Some say it describes how the water dances over the rocky ledge at changing tides, while others say the pool is the same size as a ballroom. Miri looked over at the last 12 feet of our journey. It was vertical. There's no way, I can't go down there. I pretended to be confident and took the most accessible route, which was on my bottom. I slid down, fingers gripping the stone as I went, and finally my feet hit the ground with a thud. I turned back to look at the vertiginous landscape and tried not to think about whether we'd even be able to climb back up. Lifting my arms, I helped stabilise Miri on her way down. Her legs were only slightly shorter than mine, but enough that it made finding places to step and grip more difficult. I put my hands under her armpits and pulled her from the cliff to the ground. Finally, it was time to swim, and we clambered into the limpet-studded pool. I ran my fingers over their conicals, fingering the grooves where they were rasped to the rocks. I pulled the water over me like a blanket. It was warmer submerged in the water than exposed on the wind-lashed coast. Just metres away, the waves tugged at their leash like a hungry dog. We lingered a while, and the tide bounded towards us, ready to swallow the stillness of the pool. It broke over barnacles and fossils, then showered us with seawater like a blessing. Dancing Ledge was how I experienced my friendship with Miri a safe space within otherwise turbulent times. Perfect. God, you nailed that reading. Oh, thank you. After the break, Dorf gnaws on swimming in Scandinavia on long midsummer days. And she dishes on some nude bathing on a writer's retreat. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Danish writer Dorf Nors, who lives on the rugged coast of Jutland. In the short story collection that I wrote called Wild Swims, there is a woman in Copenhagen who dreams of swimming in a moat because she longs to go to a true landscape. And she's uh, walking around Copenhagen, finding wild places to swim, but there are people everywhere. And so she goes to a, a swimming pool and uh, finds out that the wildest thing you can swim among is uh, human beings because they're crazy. 
<laughs> you know, they're wild. <laughs> in Copenhagen, you bathe in the harbor and the water is clear, so you can do that. But there are still so many people around and it's a social thing to do. And while swimming has a certain kind of solitude about it, uh, it's like it's a personal endeavor in a, in a different kind of way. I didn't make it to Denmark, but I just got back from 10 days in Scandinavia. I was in Norway and Sweden. And by day two in Norway, I had already experienced the ritual of sauna and dipping myself in the North Sea and kind of that thing where you kind of switch from the intense heat of the sauna to a cold plunge and vice versa. Why do you think that in Denmark and in wider Scandinavia, people are so drawn to the cold water and submerging themselves in all these different ways? Mm, I think Scandinavians are drawn to the landscape because it is very vast and big here and the water is part of that. There's the ocean, but in Finland and Sweden and Norway, there are a lot of streams and there is also a lot of lakes. I mean, Finland is called the land of the thousand lakes. So using water and being close to water and emerging yourself in it is a natural cultural thing here. Is it solely a summer activity or are there brave souls who are doing it in the winter and in the wilder weather? It's all year round. In Finland, it's uh, frosty and snowy and you'll go into the sauna. The interesting thing is that sauna is actually a verb over there. It's not a a place. It's a, a thing that you do. You sauna, you go into the sauna, you steam and then you perhaps even saw a hole in the ice and plunge into it. In Denmark, we call it Viking bathe, that we go into the, the ocean or the lakes uh, in the middle of winter and then run back into the sauna. How often do you do it? I have tried doing it, but I'm one of the interesting people who faint if I go from severe heat to uh, frosty water. I mean, my body can't take I just go, woo. I'm gone. (laughs) So I wouldn't do it. Some people do. I need to know how you discovered that you were one of these people who faints. I tried. That's what, that's what happened. (laughs) Fortunately, I did it in a swimming pool. So um, I didn't drown. (laughs) Well, because I, I did a cold plunge and I mean, it just knocks the wind out of you. It's, it does. It's, you feel or at least I did, like I, I couldn't breathe for a second. So it, feel, it seems logical to me that you could be led to fainting. I use the lakes and the fjords uh, all through summer. My favorite place to swim, a wild swim, is a lake called Hell Lake or Lake Hell in Denmark. It's 30 meters deep. It's in the most pristine, beautiful landscape with a lot of trees and hills. And when I go swimming there or bathing, there will be kingfishers or all all kinds of birds that uh, that sort of surround you. And there are no people. It's just you and this uh, landscape. You compared wild swimming to the act of hiking. And I have in my notes that you have used the term wild hiking in the context of doing that sort of swimming. What do you mean by that? The real wild swimmers, which I am not, will swim long distances. It will be part of their uh, method or their practice to move slowly through the landscape. Uh, And I think that hiking is a part of it. And you go into the water and then you hike on 
through the water. So it's like moving through a landscape. It also becomes spiritual, I believe. Uh, and hiking can also be that. It can be very contemplative. We have a lot of pilgrim routes in Europe and also in Denmark. And some of them go through lake country and lake districts and, and swimming will be part of that whole being in the landscape and, and thinking about life and where do I want to go and who am I and, and what is this, this earth and how do I belong to it and stuff like that. All the big questions, right? Given all the big questions, do you think that this sort of meditative, contemplative act helps you as a writer? Is it something you turn to to try and understand the world a little bit more or, I guess, see it in a different way? I'm absolutely depending on it. Hiking, moving through landscapes is enormous part of my writing. Do you think it gives you a sort of clarity? You get the fresh air into your lungs, it clears your head. You don't have to worry about anything but where you put your foot. Your eyes rest on uh, wildlife, which is how we were wired from the get-go. So it calms our brains. And, you know, all the solutions that I don't know what to do with in my text, they will usually solve during a hike because uh, it's like my brain start working again. And we have uh, midsummer here, so the light will go on all through the night. And in Scandinavia, that is... A, a very special time for wild swimming. It's like we become Italians. People skinny dip. Not me anymore, but I mean, when I was younger, you know, people just, it's like a, a culture where you just go, you become ecstatic. It's midnight. You, it's still hot. The sun is still up and, and you go into the lake with your friends. I was once at a writer's retreat close to the lake and the culture occurred among the Danish writers to go skinny dipping. I mean, uh, drinking and skinny dipping. And I was sitting in a residency a little further away from them so I could observe them. They were naked morning, noon and night and they were walking past my window. I usually say, I've seen the genitalia of the most famous Danish writers and I don't, I'm not <laughs> sure that I can ever erase that from my memory. And I, kind of wish I hadn't. <laughs> and I'm assuming that you are far too classy to share the names of who those authors were on this podcast. I will never share the names. <laughs> I will never. <laughs> I went to Japan a few years ago and obviously onsen culture is very prevalent there and you have to strip off to do it. You can't enter mm -hmm. those spaces without being butt naked and I needed to do it for the story but it wasn't easy. I actually found it quite it was a mm -hmm. it was a mental process to get to the point where I could do it. I didn't participate in in the skinny dipping, but I did go swimming with them in my bathing suit because if I was younger, I might have done it. But I'm I've become a little famous writer in Denmark, and I don't want them to remember me like I remember them. <laughs> you had a nice time. So. <laughs> yeah, I had, well, I don't know. I would rather have been able to remember their faces than all the rest. <laughs> Next week, writer, activist and educator Rachel Cargill talks about her memoir and manifesto, A Renaissance of Our Own, and explains how breaking from our routines can have life-changing insights. See you then. I'm Lale Aracogli, and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hanna. Our engineers are Jake Loomis and Gabe Caroga. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. 
Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. See you next week. Do you sometimes wake up with the desire to understand the seen and the unseen forces guiding you through this life? And are you ready to begin uncovering the impacts of these forces in your day to day? Do you feel that you could use a little push, a little umph, or maybe even a little juju to be reminded of your power within your ancestors to truly understand you? Well, child, so it sounds like you need a little juju podcast in your life. Hey, bays! I'm your host, Juju Bay. Welcome, Aquaba, bienvenidos to the Womanist Witchy Insight Show, diving deep into the Black healing journey, pop culture juju, and the ancestral spiritual systems that can help get us free. So please come on over and join the ALJ Pod family. New episodes drop every single Wednesday, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.